God, this is your day. You are king and ruler. You have authority in this place. And so we welcome you, Jesus, and invite you, Spirit of God, to do whatever it is you want to do as we get into your word together. Jesus, you are welcome here. In Christ's name, amen. Well, so glad, again, that you uh, chose to join us for worship this morning. To those who are here every Sunday, welcome. Uh, To those maybe who have been uh, gone for a little while, returning, welcome. To those who are maybe brand new with us, welcome. You picked a fantastic day to join us for so many reasons, not the least of which is today is a big, big day in the life of the church. So if you're brand new with us, this was the the day to pick. It's kind of like if you're a football fan or or you're not a football fan and, and you decide one day you're going to get into football, which game do you go to? The Super Bowl. This is, the, this is the Super Bowl of church today, Easter Sunday, so you picked a great day to be here. The, the second reason you picked a great day to be here is that we start a series today called The Crown. We're going to take a look at the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is and, and what it's like and its scope and definition over the next five weeks, and, and today we get started in that series, so you don't have to kind of catch up, you don't have to backtrack, you're, you're here uh, to, to launch into a five-week week series and we pray and and hope that you'll stick with us over the next five weeks. And today we're starting with this concept of how the kingdom came to be. And and I want to answer a critical question for us this morning that, that might be a little bit different than what you would expect on an Easter Sunday. Because on holidays like this, we we have these kind of core questions that we like to answer in church. On Christmas, everybody knows why was Jesus born? That's kind of the question that we talk about. And then on Good Friday, we talk about this question: why did Jesus die? And we unpack that together. And then on Easter Sunday, it's why did Jesus rise again? But today I want to ask and answer a different question and you're going to have to stick with me because this is absolutely critical for us to understand the message of the gospel. And it's this simple question, why did Jesus live? Maybe we know why he was born and maybe we know why he died, but here's our question today. Why did Jesus live? And it's interesting because most of us, regardless of background, even if you grew up in church, we can't really articulate why Jesus lived. I mean, we know that he lived, but we're not sure why he lived. Maybe we can tell you why he was born or why he died or why he rose again, but we really don't know why he lived. We don't know his mission, his purpose in life. So people ask, like, why did Jesus live? And we guess and we say, oh, he lives as an example. Or he lived to teach us some stuff. And then we skip to that death and resurrection part pretty quickly because that's the part we know. And though Jesus did live an exemplary life and though he taught us a lot of great stuff, that's not the foundational reasons that he actually lived. 
The second, question, the second reason I want to address this question uh, this morning flows kind of out of that first reason, and it's this. If we know why Jesus lived, if we know his life purpose, then the implications of his life for your life and for my life will become increasingly easy to discover and uncover. Even the implications of the resurrection, which we'll talk about in a moment, become clear in light of the reason why Jesus lived. Third, the Gospels themselves, like the four biographies of Jesus included in the New Testament, they're mostly concerned with the life of Christ. They talk about his death and resurrection at the end, and only two of them actually give us any details about his birth. The bulk of the Gospels talk about the life of Christ. They get into very meticulous detail as to why Jesus lived. I mean, think about it this way. Why wouldn't the gospel writers just go, well, Jesus was born in a manger. He was God in the flesh. Flash, you know, fast forward 33 years, and here he was having Passover with his disciples, and Judas betrayed him, and then he died. Why would the gospels get into so much detail regarding the actual events of the life of Christ? Why do they spend all of that time and energy? Because Jesus didn't come just to die and rise. He actually came to do something his life meant something and so we're going to answer that question this morning why did Jesus live and the fourth reason that I want to answer this question this morning the fourth reason I want to unpack it might be relevant to a lot of us in the place who may maybe don't come from a church background or would you would say you know what I'm not a Christian I'm not a person of faith here's one of the key reasons for you if you're new with us and you're not a person of faith you're not you don't call yourself a Christ follower here's one of the key reasons for you that I think it's so important that we address this question because Academia and even popular opinion of Jesus suggest that his purpose in life was rather hazy or unformulated or, or even mysterious. Let me illustrate this for you, and it's just by way of asking a question. This time of year, there are specials all over TV, right, and magazines and newspapers, and they talk about the life of Jesus. How many of you have watched any of those specials like this time of year? You see them on public access TV and magazines and newspapers. I love those things. I think they're fascinating on a lot of levels. But the thing about these specials and the thing about these articles is they kind of put forward this notion that the Bible isn't really accurate, or better yet, the Bible isn't clear as to who Jesus was. The Bible isn't clear as to what his purpose in life was. So if you watch those TV specials or read those articles, they position themselves as kind of a neutral party, right, that's researching the historical Jesus because the biblical Jesus, of course, isn't an accurate or clear depiction. They even suggest that Jesus was kind of navigating his life as he went rather than living out a clearly defined purpose. Case in point, a lot of those programs use phrases like, quote, the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith, unquote, in order to indicate that the biblical Jesus and the actual historical Jesus are different. 
Let me just keep unpacking this for us. Some of you may have even heard of the Jesus Seminar. Have anybody heard of the Jesus Seminar? It's like 150 scholars that created this voting system of different color beads to determine whether the New Testament was historically accurate or not. And red meant it like for sure happened and pink meant maybe it happened and gray meant we're pretty sure it didn't happen and then black meant it, it for sure didn't happen at all. And they actually published new versions of the New Testament. They published new translations with all those colors coded in there so you could go back and read and, and you know for sure whether it actually happened or didn't happen. The problem with the Jesus Seminar is that they base their entire research project on this assumption, that the Bible isn't correct. Or, or better yet, the Bible isn't really clear. Jesus didn't really know. The Bible doesn't really know. We're not really sure what his purpose in life was. That kind of came later down the road. And I'll be really honest with you. This kind of makes sense to me. Let me explain why. You're like, this makes sense to you. You're the pastor here. Okay. Um, okay. It makes sense to me that there would be a growing confusion in our culture surrounding Jesus' life purpose. And here's the reason why. We often use confusion to disguise our resistance. Because if the Bible isn't clear on Jesus' life purpose, if the Bible isn't clear on this question, why did Jesus live? And especially if Jesus wasn't clear on his life purpose, then we kind of get a pass on responding to him, don't we? If, 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 if who Jesus was or who he really was is kind of elusive, how can Jesus actually require anything of me? You see this happen with your kids all the time. You tell them your curfew is 11 p.m. That's your curfew, 11. And then they show up at 4 a.m. And you say, what happened? And they say to you, well, it wasn't clear, right? <laughs> That's our kind of first line of defense. When we're reluctant or resistant, our first line of defense is, well, it really wasn't all that clear. Same with the Jesus Seminar. Same with so many of these scholars that came out of the Jesus Seminar. Same with TV specials and programs and magazines and newspapers. They posit Jesus as this nebulous figure that did not have a predetermined purpose, but kind of accidentally made a global impact. And I would submit to you that they do this in order to absolve themselves of the responsibility to respond to Jesus' core claim. But, the, but here's the deal. This nebulous figure that didn't really know what he was doing is so far from the biblical picture. The Bible is crystal clear as to why Jesus lived and his life purpose why did he live? That's where we're beginning our series today. So look here on the screen. I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures and we're going to talk about them together. Matthew writes this. And he went throughout all Galilee, that's Jesus, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus himself says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Doesn't sound nebulous to me. Mark begins his gospel with kind of this overarching thesis statement that he unpacks through the rest of his gospel. He says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Listen to this. The Bible uses that word king more than almost any other noun, 2,124 times. There are only five nouns used more than the word king in the Bible. God, Lord, people, Israel, and man. Pretty good ones. 
and king is used 2,124 times. The gospels in particular won't shut up about this kingdom business. They use the word kingdom, those four biographies of the life of Jesus, 114 times. And the vast majority are references to God's kingdom. That means that on average, the gospels talk about the kingdom of God in every chapter. Actually, more than once per chapter on average. The Bible is clear. The answer to the question, why did Jesus live, is simply this. Jesus lived in order to become king. Jesus lived in order to become king. Yes, he was a good teacher. Yes, he was a prophet. Yes, he was a guide. Yes, he was a revolutionary figure in so many ways. But all of those roles are like tributaries. They're like streams that flow into this one river called the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Jesus came to install himself as king. Jesus lived in order to become king. Now, I find this fascinating because Jesus chose a very interesting time in human history to inaugurate his kingdom. Because if you, for example, wanted to become king of Canada, let's just say, you would pick a time when, 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 when it was kind of tumultuous politically, wouldn't you? You'd pick a time when, when there was some unrest, when, when people didn't really know who was in charge and there wasn't really a leader. That's the time you would say, I'm, I'm the leader. I'm, I'm the king of Canada. That's the time that you would pick. But that's not how God works. Watch this. I, I did some research this week and learned that the Roman Empire is widely considered the greatest kingdom in history. The British Empire, the Han Dynasty, the Ottoman Empire, they all pale in comparison to the authority, longevity, power, and territory of the Roman Empire. And Jesus shows up on the scene in the middle of that kingdom, and he starts to claim that God's kingdom is here. And P.S., it supersedes the Roman Empire. God chose to launch his kingdom at the height of the greatest kingdom that the world has ever known. And Jesus doesn't just claim he's king. Look back at that verse in Mark. He says, Mark says that he proclaims that the kingdom is at hand. That word proclaiming is very interesting because in the original Greek, the language your Bible is written in, it's like a royal decree from a palace. This is, this is what the picture is. Jesus steps on the scene and he says, hear ye, hear ye. The king says, so on and so forth. There's no ambiguity, there's no confusion, there's no pushback, there's no, well, it's kind of up for discussion. Jesus is the herald of a royal decree. So think about it. Showing up somewhere and claiming that your king is all well and good, but if it doesn't work out, you look pretty stupid, don't you? <laughs> This is the risk that Jesus takes in proclaiming his kingdom. He walks into enemy territory, the world's most powerful empire, and repeats this claim. There's a new king in town, and I'm him. It's not confusing why he came. So, so here's why I think God is just unbelievably smart. I think God is so smart. If you learn nothing on this Easter Sunday, learn God is smart. That's, that's why you came to church, to know that God is smart, okay? So if he actually pulls this off, 
If he sends his son into the world and proclaims a kingdom and he actually becomes king while the Roman Empire is at his peak, then he's got a pretty good claim to the throne, doesn't he? And it's a bold move. Regardless of how you respond to Jesus' claim, his purpose and his claim is very, very clear. The scripture is very clear. He lived to inaugurate God's kingdom. Not just that, he says he is God and the kingdom is his kingdom. Jesus says, I'm king. Now, this is where the ambiguity of scholarship and Jesus' TV specials look pretty good. <laughs> because again, if, if it's ambiguous, if it's nebulous, if we don't really know, then it absolves us of responsibility. But Jesus never intended to leave his purpose in life open for interpretation. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. He says, I wear the crown. This is the biblical claim that we have to face head on. So question number one this morning, why did Jesus live? This is why he lived. He lived to become king. So my second question is this, how in the world does that happen? Like, how does an individual become king? Or how does an individual like Jesus prove such an audacious claim? It sounds so ridiculous for him to walk on the planet, some obscure little no-name village that nobody's ever heard of, and say, oh, P.S., I'm king of the universe. How does he prove that? Well, Monty Python fans, Holy Grail fans, we learn from Monty Python that you don't vote for a king, Right? We learned in King Arthur's conversation with Dennis, or Monty Python fans, old woman. Not a woman, I'm a man, right? But, but you don't vote a king into power. We, again, we learned from Monty Python. But, but you can inherit that title, or, or check it out, you can just defeat all your enemies and then become king. That's a great way to become king. You just systematically start to conquer all of your enemies. And once you're done conquering all of your enemies, you're king. And just like the Roman Empire and the British Empire, the empire of God has adversaries. And those adversaries attempt to subvert God's purposes and God's forward movement. And listen to this. In his life and death and resurrection, Jesus systematically defeated all of his kingdom's adversaries. One by one, Jesus just started to pick them off. And in his life and death and resurrection, he systematically defeated every one of his kingdom's adversaries. And Jesus isn't all that concerned with defeating adversaries that can't do that much damage. He sets out to defeat those adversaries that have eaten humanity alive since the dawn of time. He doesn't set out to defeat nations. He doesn't set out to defeat empires. He sets out to defeat decay and hopelessness and the adversaries from within. Jesus is concerned with defeating the adversaries that man can never defeat. And regardless of our technological advances or our efforts or our resources or our brain power, we are still crippled, even defeated by three primary adversaries. Shame, death, and pride. Shame, death, and pride. 
Let's just pick them off one at a time. And I want to tell you how and why Jesus defeated each of those adversaries. We'll start with pride. And track with me because this is absolutely critical for understanding why Jesus lived and why today matters. Let's start with pride. So God created the world just how he wanted it. He created it exactly how he wanted it. He created it just so. No death, no sickness, no shame. God and man walked together every day. This was God's design. But an adversary called pride entered the world and began to unravel God's design. It, for those Bible readers, right? Remember Adam and Eve, and they were in the garden, and they were tempted? This was the temptation, remember? Eat this fruit, and you will be what? Like God. And they thought, well, maybe we can be like God. Maybe we're capable. Maybe we can be equal to him. And so they ate the fruit, pride. And that day, pride established itself as an adversary of God's purpose and by extension, an adversary of humanity in general. And you're thinking, pride is an adversary of humanity in general. Yes, it is. Think about it. Think about the wars that we fight. Think about the arguments that we get into with friends and family. Think about the reason that our families crumble and fall apart. There's almost always, and I would even submit to you, always a way in which pride contributes to those core problems of humanity. One country thinks its ideologies or politics or citizens are better than another. And the next thing you know, airstrikes. God's design was peace. And an adversary, pride, creates war. One spouse thinks they're better than the other. They say, my needs aren't getting met. The marriage doesn't meet my expectations. The next thing you know, they're filing papers. God's design was for marriage, and an adversary, pride, is a catalyst for divorce because pride is an adversary of God's kingdom purpose. But then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he starts to push back on pride. And he doesn't do it in a way that you'd think a king typically would. He doesn't demand his rights. He doesn't take anything by force. He doesn't ride around on a white horse and, and demand that others submit. He was humble. He was a carpenter's son, born into obscurity. And in his final act, Jesus humbled himself to death. At the cross, the only one that could have demanded his rights or trumpeted his own opinion and had every right to do so chose not to and submitted to the hands of wicked men. So what's pride left with? What leverage does it have? It has no place to go. It has no power. It has no hold. And this, this pride had been an adversary for the human race even long before Jesus. Remember that word hubris that we all kind of learned in high school growing up? That hubris is, is, is the fatal flaw of countless heroes of fiction and countless heroes of reality. It's pride. And in Jesus, the ultimate hero, the one who wears the crown, pride is stripped of all of its power. That which had been the bane of human existence was handcuffed at the very moment that history transitioned from B.C. to A.D. Pride was rendered powerless. Pride was defeated in the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. Let's talk about adversary number two, shame. Shame. Again, back to Adam and Eve. Remember that the Old Testament says before they rebelled, before they walked away from God, they were unashamed. And then once they did, what was the first thing they did? 
They hid from God. They ran away from God. That's what our shame causes us to do. They were ashamed of what they'd done. They hid from him. And that's what humanity has been doing since the dawn of time. They've been running from God for the same reason Adam and Eve did, shame. We're ashamed of our past or even of our present. We're ashamed of our actions or our lack of action. We're ashamed of our thoughts or motivations or attitudes. And that shame causes us to retreat, causes us to retreat from God, causes us to retreat from others. But nearness to God and nearness to others were part of God's design. So our shame became an adversary to God's purposes because it causes us to hide and run away from God. So how does Jesus defeat shame? How does Jesus defeat that hiding and secrecy and that running away from God and others? He shows up on the scene and systematically begins to dismantle shame. First, over and over again, the New Testament tells us that Jesus knew the secret thoughts of men and women, and yet he loved them anyway. In fact, Jesus drew men and women out of secrecy and out of hiding and out of shame into an unashamed life. The woman at the well, the woman with the discharge of blood, Peter, over and over again, the, example, the New Testament is full of examples of people who ran from God because they were ashamed of their actions, but Jesus seeks them out. He calls them out of hiding, out of shame, and back to his side. He defeats the adversary of shame and furthers the restoration of God's kingdom design. So we've come this far. Here's Jesus. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he starts to systematically defeat all the adversaries that might want to dismantle or push back against his kingdom, pride and shame. But there's one final adversary, one final enemy that loomed large, and that's the enemy of death. The enemy of death. There's a modern scientist, he's an agnostic guy, he's passed on now, his name is Stephen Jay Gould, and he wrote this, death is the ultimate enemy, and I find nothing reproachable in those who rage mightily against the dying of the light. And so humanity rages against, kicks against, pushes back against that ultimate enemy, death. Because death, of course, is the trip from whence we never return. There are no do-overs. People don't come back. And so we prolong life to the best of our ability. We spend gobs of money every year avoiding even the aesthetics of death, avoiding even, even, even kind of what death might look like. We, we spend money on plastic surgery and gym memberships and moisturizer, right, to avoid what death might look like, to prolong it. it, it this is amazing to me. Is anybody, do you know who Ted Williams is? You heard of Ted Williams, the baseball player, Hall of Fame baseball player? Okay, you don't have to know baseball to get this example, all right? Check, check this out. Ted Williams is dead, but Ted Williams isn't buried in the ground. He's not been cremated. Ted, Ted Williams is, is in what's called biostasis. His body has been cryogenically frozen, just in case some scientist figures out how to bring people back. <laughs> This, this, is, this is why I moved to Canada. Um, <laughs> because Ted Williams' body is literally kept in the city that I used to live in, Scottsdale, Arizona. Like, man, I got to get to Canada. This is... Why? We'll do anything to keep from dying. 
will do anything to fix it. It's the ultimate enemy. Death always wins. The rates are still one out of one. Death, in fact, in a lot of ways, is the foundational fear. People fear heights or they fear spiders or war or the dark because they either associate those things with death or fear that they might lead to death. And all the while, King Jesus has already conquered it. He's already conquered death. Because nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, lay dead in a grave for 48 hours. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, Jesus' friends went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, because nobody ever comes back, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Sometimes, as Christians, and even those who don't know Jesus and wouldn't claim that they're a Christian, we assume that Jesus rose from the grave as one more awesome miracle in a long string of miracles. It's kind of the pinnacle miracle, rising from the dead. Or he rose from the grave to demonstrate his power over death. That's all true. But get this. This is why we celebrate. This is why we gather for worship today. Death was the final and ultimate adversary and Jesus is the conquering king. Jesus in rising from the grave demonstrates that he wears the crown. He has rule and authority and reign. He has conquered every enemy, yours and mine and ultimately his. He beat it. He has all the codes. (laughs) He's done. All the adversaries, all the enemies have been conquered. He beat them handily. And so you might track back and ask yourself, well, Jesus showed up, you know, when the Roman Empire was at its height and this Roman kingdom was at its height. So did he succeed in overthrowing the greatest empire that the world has ever known? Rome didn't think so. They think they got him. They think they killed him. They thought they were done with him. But I would submit to you this morning that all that's left of the Roman Empire is ruins. And there are two billion citizens of God's kingdom in the world and counting. The king is risen, and all of his enemies are defeated. Death was the final adversary. It's gone. It's beaten. This is why Paul, as he talks about the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 15, says death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus has become become king because pride and shame and death are gone. That's why he lived. That's why he died. And indeed, that's why he rose again and why we celebrate, not because he's a prophet or a good teacher or an example, although all those things are true. He did it because he's king. And this is the claim of Resurrection Sunday. This is the claim that we have to face head on. Not do I think he's a good prophet, not do I think he's a good teacher, not do I think he was a good man and he had some spiritual stuff to say and I like those beatitudes, but is he or is he not king? Because this is what he claimed. One more invitation and we'll be done. If Jesus is king, 
if he's defeated all of his adversaries, and as a matter of fact, yours and mine as well, in pride and shame and death, what does he require of us? What does he call us to? How do we respond to the conquering king? Jesus invites us, even requires us, to become subjects of the crown. And he's inviting you this morning. He's calling you this morning to become a subject of the crown. Sometimes when we think of this idea, subject of the crown, we, 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 we get this picture in our mind of like a throng of people gathered around a palace, like the end of Lord of the Rings, right? Or, or, or older people, the end of Star Wars, you know? And, and we got all the, the C-3PO and, the, and the, uh, the droids and the druids and the, I don't, I don't even know, whatever it is, all right? They're, everybody's gathered around and everybody's bowing to this person on a throne. Everybody's, everybody's paying homage and everybody's kneeling down. And, and yes, that's true. Yes, we pay homage to Jesus. And yes, we kneel before Jesus. But there's something different than that in this invitation to submit to Jesus' authority, to become a subject of the crown, to say, you won, you beat all your adversaries, you're the rightful king, and I submit to you. There's something different about that, and I want to help you understand that this morning, and I couldn't think of an illustration that had anything to do with kings or kingdoms or crowns. <laughs> so I had to use one from skydiving, okay? So you're just going to have to stick with me here to understand what Jesus is calling us to when he says, my invitation is that you would become a subject of the crown, that you would submit to me. My wife and I went skydiving uh, about two years ago. Um, I, if like I drink milk a day past its, 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 you know, its dead date, that's like the, the biggest risk I take in my life. I'm not a risk guy. I don't, I don't, like, I don't like speeding on the freeway. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a roll the dice kind of guy. Unfortunately, my wife is. So she told me one day, she said, I would like to go skydiving. And I said, great, I would love to drive you there. <laughs> and she said, no, that's not the point. You, you've got to go with me. And I said, no, I don't. And she said, do you want to stay married? And I said, all right. Um, <laughs> she didn't say that. She didn't say that. So, so here we are, and, and we'd go skydiving. How many of you have been skydiving before? Anybody been skydiving before? Good. Yeah, a couple of you. You're stupid. Okay, um... <laughs> You know, just, just, I mean, I got tricked into it, I think, right? So, so you show up and you do the skydiving thing. And, and what I would picture when you do the skydiving thing is that you jump out of a plane and you pull the thing and you have the parachute and you land the deal. But, but on your first skydiving jump, that's not what they let you do, okay? You don't do that. You go on what's called a tandem jump. So they load uh, Amy and I up in this plane along with two instructors. And the plane was about the size of a pack of gum. Like, it had, it had one seat with the pilot and then like a floor in the back. We're sitting on the floor and I'm like, is that, was that duct tape original or is that aftermarket? It's a, you know, it's, it's taped up, right? And, and we're in this thing and, and I've got this like harness deal on and, and I don't really know what's going on, but I'm about to jump out of this plane. 
And so the instructor says to me, he sits down and he says, you, you sit down right in front of me. And I sit down and he literally is behind me, right? We're sitting on the floor and, and he kind of grabs my shoulders like this and he goes like this. <laughs> I need you to relax. And I, said, <laughs> I thought, well, we got a problem then because um, that is not going to happen. He said, here's the deal. And he knew, he knew I was shaking. I'm like about to vomit and everything. All the while, my wife is like, isn't this exciting? I was like, you know, you know when, when Starbucks releases their pumpkin mocha in the fall, that's exciting. This, <laughs> this is terrifying. Um, so he says, I need you to relax and I need you to just kind of submit is what he's asking me to do. Submit to his authority Submit to his experience. Submit to the fact that he had been there before. Check this out. Submit to the fact that he had my best interest at heart. Did he not? He, he actually landed me okay. <laughs> and, and, he's, and he starts to hook me on and strap me on. Could you imagine if I said to him, look, this is not my preference. Or the goal here is a little nebulous. I'm not sure you were really clear as to what exactly you wanted me to do. He said, you stop moving and just relax. That's exactly what I want you to do. I am now in control of your life. I have your best interest at heart. You're going to be fine. And, and check this out. When, when, when you go skydiving, I was under the impression that uh, you jump out of a plane. That's not actually what happens. You're flying along, and they get you to the edge of this thing, and they open the door, and the guy says to me, now kick your leg out. <laughs> I said, no. Um, <laughs> He said, kick your leg out. And I kicked my leg out, and he kicked his leg out. And all of a sudden, the plane just goes like this. Oop. And it dumps us out. It should be called sky dumping, because that's, <laughs> there's no diving involved. They just dump you out. Just, just so you have a full Easter experience, I want to show you a picture of what happened. It's up here on the screen. That's me. <laughs> The... Get it out, get it out. It, it sounds a little silly, but look, this is what Jesus invites us to. Look at, look at my Jesus behind me there, right? He's, he's cool, calm, and collected. He's been out of this plane before. In fact, he's been out a thousand times, and every time he landed just fine. He took care of me. He had my best interest at heart. But you know what I had to do? I had to submit. I had to relax. I had to let him be in control. This is the invitation of the gospel. Jesus says, I am king. Now relax. I have your best interest at heart. I've conquered all your enemies of pride and shame and death. You just have to relax. And this is what the Christian life feels like to me a lot of times, both terrifying and exhilarating all at the same time. Because Jesus is king, and he has me in his loving grip. He has me under control. And you know what? I can trust him because he's conquered every enemy that you and I face. Pray with me. I want to give you an opportunity today and this morning to respond to Jesus if you never have before. And some of you, 
may never have heard the gospel preached that way. You may have never heard the New Testament or the Bible in general talked about that way. You may have heard that Jesus was a good teacher, a good prophet, but, but you may never have heard that the Bible is very clear. Jesus claims that he is king of the universe and of your life. And his invitation is that you would respond in joyful obedience, in joyful submission, and let him take control because he has your best interests at heart. And all of those fears and adversaries and enemies that you face, the way that pride takes your life apart at times, the way that shame causes you to run from God and others, the way that you fear death, all of those things are conquered. All of them are gone. Jesus is king and his invitation is to say yes to him and submit to his authority and his rule and reign. And he has authority, he has rule, and he is reigning because he's conquered every enemy that you and I and that he ever faced. It's a really simple prayer. It's not terribly complicated. It's just something like this. You say, God, I recognize that I've rebelled. I recognize that I've run from you. I've recon I recognize that I've said no to your best for me, said no to your plan. I recognize that there have been times where you've asked me to submit and I had other ideas in mind. And now I do what you're asking me to do. I relax. I place my faith in you. I place my trust in you as my good and gracious and kind and ruling and reigning king. If you did that this morning, I want you to know, check this out, you do not have to fear death. Because Jesus says that you will live eternally with him if you place your trust in him. That's great news. You don't have to fear shame because the God of this universe who rules and reigns says that you are loved and you are his treasured possession and he loves you no matter what and he sees you as his son or daughter. You don't have to fear pride because Jesus even conquered that one and though we still struggle with it, eventually it will all go away when we bow before the king. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I would love to meet you afterwards. I would love for you to introduce yourself to me just so I can say welcome to the family of God. God, we love you this Easter Sunday. We love you this Resurrection Sunday. We love that we can trust you. We love that we can put our hope in you. We love we, we can put our faith in you. We love that you have our best interest at heart and you're always gonna care for us and you are a good and gracious and conquering king. We give you praise in this place today. And the people of God together said, amen.